Good morning. It is a season of giving. Gifts are a wonderful way of showing affection and appreciation. It's always interesting to see how different families or groups exchange gifts. There's kind of two extremes where you get in a circle and everyone kind of separates the gifts and puts them in front of people. And one extreme you have the no holes barred, everyone just goes at it in their own way and paper's flying and there's rejoicing and then it ends. Or you have the goodness and order model where everyone must open one gift at a time and well, try to make it as painfully excruciating for children as much as possible. Regardless of how you might open the gifts as a family, something inevitable happens. A child quickly tears into a gift, and then afterwards the parent realizes we don't know who that came from. And then there's that long search for the name tag in the midst of all the other paper because they, they need to know who it's from. Children are mainly focused on what they're getting. Parents, they want to know who it came from. Is there, is there a special meaning? Is who to think? It's important for us to see there's a development there. Children really love the gift. And as we grow up, we want to know more about who gave the gift. Christian, this, this is helpful for us. We, we, we first learn to enjoy the gift we receive from God. And then as we grow up, we learn to learn to how to love and appreciate more and more the, the one who gave that gift. This is how God blesses us. He gives us good gifts, and, and we, we want to believe in him so that we receive those gifts, but then we start to see more and more who he is. This morning, we're looking at a significantly rich passage. From the text just read, John 1, 1 to 18, which is the prologue of John, we're, we're going to look at just one verse, and I'm going to I want to explain the the verse from from the entire prologue, from the whole section, but verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We're going to see who, who gives the gifts we receive. How he gives these gifts, and then what are these gifts? Who gives, how he gives, what does he give? Uh, First, who? Important, verse 14, and and the word became flesh. Uh, The word wasn't always incarnate. The the word preexisted becoming flesh. Flesh. The, the, Jesus, the Son, existed but before he took upon uh, the human body. If we actually go back, we've already been introduced to the word in John 1.1. There's three very important phrases we see here. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. We learn about who the giver is in these three phases, phrases. In the beginning, that, that should already have us remembering Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God created. The word we're supposed to be thinking about and, and meditating upon is in the beginning, but before creation. 
already giving us a, a significant insight into something about the, the Word. And if we keep reading in John 1, well, everything that was created was created by Him. And there was nothing created that wasn't created by Him. That's, a, that's an affirmation and a denial that makes it very clear. The Word created, He, he is not created. Well, then we see the second declaration. And the Word was with God. That, that, that phrase declares a relationship. Now, if, if you're a monotheistic Jew who worships Yahweh, you're starting to feel a little uncomfortable about the Word. He was in the beginning. There, there, there's an association relationship between the God, the one God of creation, and His, His Word by which He created. The Word was with God in a way that it shows a relationship. And then the third declaration, the word was God. Well, that got a little beyond uncomfortable if you're a monotheistic Jew who worships Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But here we, we see a new category being introduced in Revelation. The one God is with his word, and the word is God, fully God. This helps us this morning to, to realize there's, God, God is great and beyond our, our comprehension. What, what we receive here is, is, comp, is, is understandable. It's, it's true. It's trustworthy. There's no analogy for God. We're getting into the doctrine of the Trinity here. The one God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There, there's, there's a distinction within the one God. There's God in his word or, as we also know, Father and Son. If you look at John 1.14, we see that the Word who was with God, He's also the Son who comes from the Father, who has glory. When you think about who, uh, we have to first see the Word is fully God. The Word has all the power of God that created ex nihilo. The, the Word is fully God who, who is able to create Something out of nothing. The, the Word is fully God who was independent from creation. He pre-existed creation. He does not depend upon creation. He is sovereign. He's fully God. He is eternal. He, he's timeless. He's fully God. He's the Son of God who has a perfect relationship with the Father as the only Son. He's fully God. He shares in the glory of God. He's worthy of all worship. Now, those are challenging concepts. But as we, we see now, as we progress from who, he, first, he, he, he's God the creator. He, he's God with all power. Well, how has he come? Notice, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is where the action really picks up. The, the word who declared all things into existence now enters into what he created. The, the word who formed man from the earth has now entered into humanity. And the language dwelt among us. He lived among us. He, he took up an abode. There's a, a covenant illustration there from the temple. 
the word that created the world came into his world. Look at verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. The creator comes to his creation. We know this from the nativity scene that we we see. We know this from Luke that we read earlier. We, we didn't read the passage where the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child as a virgin without knowing a man. The Holy Spirit is going to hover into, over your womb. The Holy Spirit is going to bring about a, a conception, a miraculous conception, where God's own son is going to take your life, your flesh, your DNA, your body and soul, and it's going to be added to him. He entered into this world by addition. He he already was the Word. He already is the Son. But now he's coming to take up a new abode, a, a new dwelling in his creation. And the language is significant. It's covenant language. He he didn't just pop in and make a, a presence. He doesn't just kind of show up and, and make a declaration. No, he enters in to, to unite himself with his creation. And this is phenomenal if you think about it. The very word that's upholding all that exists has come to depend upon water that he created. Bread that he created. He he who all things depend upon has come to live as a human who now depends on that which he creates. He adds to himself a real human nature. It's important for us to to capture what really one of the things that makes Christianity unique. You you see, the, the God up there The God who is holy and awesome, he is also the God who is here, who is immediate and present. If you think about all the other religions of the world, or all the other ideals of the world, or philosophies of some kind of God, they're going to emphasize one of those against the other. A God who is distant and far away and great, but couldn't ever come down to be with us because it's too dirty. Or a God who's just like us and in every way must be imminent. Christian, this morning, we worship the God who is holy, holy, holy. And here, here, here. He's great and and mighty and worthy to be praised. And he came to be with us in such a specific, unique, absolute way. That's what we're pondering this morning. That's that's the the challenge to to grasp. The God who created all things good then came down to be in that creation, to be with that creation, because we ruined what he created good. We see sin in the passage in verses 10 and 11. The world that he came to be in, the world that was made through him, did not not know him. He came to his own, and they did not receive him. We could talk about sin in so many ways. 
We could go through the Ten Commandments. Do we have idols? Do we murder? Do we lust? Do we covet? Here, sin is, sin is simply not responding to God as he is worthy. Not knowing him, not believing in him, not trusting him, not recognizing him, not hearing him, not responding to him. Who, he who created us came down to us. And if you're regular with us, remember we, we, we finishing up Luke, we just went through the trials of Jesus where he's mocked, spat upon, beaten, ultimately nailed to a cross to suffer and die. Christ wasn't surprised by this. He, he knew that's how we would receive him. He knew that once we understood a little bit of who he was, the kind of authority, that's how we would treat him. But he came down to save us from that very sin. You see, he comes not because he needs us. He comes because we need him. I want us to wrestle with what is called the divine dilemma. God created us good. God breathed his own life into us. God made us in his image to carry out a, a, a purpose to, to glorify himself throughout all creation. There was such a goodness and a greatness of what God had created. But he made a promise that if we broke the one command and if we ate from the tree of the one, uh, the, the fruit of the one tree, we would die. The dilemma is this. God has to keep his word. We must die because of sin. God must keep his word. But, but he created us so good. He created us with such a purpose. Would it be a failure of God to have such goodness and purpose created in us with his own life and then have to keep his promise? The divine dilemma is, how can he withhold up what he's made so good and also keep the promise that we must die because of sin? Well, God has an answer to this dilemma. He made a promise that he would come, that he would defeat death, that he would come to be like us in every way without sin. He would come and suffer the consequence of sin. He would come to give us new life. You see, our sin problem isn't that we need a little tune-up, a little adjustment. We need to be saved, born again, renewed. That's why it's so important. It's the Word who becomes flesh. The very Word that God created all things through. The very Word that has the power to create things out of nothing. He's also the very God who can create and make a new heart out of the heart of stone we have. He has the power to bring light in the midst of our darkness. He alone has the power to save us. The Word who created us, He's now come to be with us. He is Emmanuel. As we just meditated upon, he was born that man may no, no more may die. The language dwelt goes back to the tabernacle, the temple, and it represents three things. One, God's presence, God with us. 
hearing God's word, and three, the, the sacrifices that make atonement for sin. Jesus Christ coming to become flesh, the, the word becoming flesh, the, the, to, to abode, to abide with us, to dwell with us. He, he's the temple. He's the word of God. He alone can help us know God fully and truly. He alone can bring about a satisfaction of sin. You see, the way he came was as a covenant God. A God who made promises. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to reverse the curse you brought about. I'm going to renew what you have ruined in this glorious, good creation. I myself will come and I will defeat Satan. I will defeat death. I will overcome your sin. The word comes not because he needs us, but because we need him. The word comes in a covenant to renew the relationship that we ruined. The word comes to bring blessings as far as the curse is found. He comes to renew us. He came as a promise to bring about a new relationship. Now, how should we think about this incarnation? One of the things I'm going to slightly and hesitantly correct, but I, I want to be clear. Some folks want to take this incarnational language and immediately say, well, church, we should be more incarnational. I want to say, let's, let's, let's pump the brakes on that a little bit. We belong here. We were created here. I don't like using that language because the word who is not of this creation, to, to be incarnated means he, he comes down to a place he, he didn't already exist. He, 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 he descends down to us. To, to pretend that we would be incarnational would be like saying we weren't here already. No, the, the whole reason Jesus comes down is so that we can be brought up. Jesus did not come down to us so that we could be more committed to something on this earth as if we could redeem it. Jesus came down to us so that he could lift us up. The proper response is not to think, how can I be more incarnational? No, how do I live as an alien here now? A stranger. Because your citizenship is no longer here. It's in heaven. Where Christ sits. Christian, there's a way in which that should bring about a new kind of living. Holiness is now the calling. It's not getting deeper into something cultural. It's not getting deeper into the, the life we have now. No, it's longing for the life Christ has promised us. It's, it's seeking to live in the frustration of the sin that keeps hindering us from knowing God more. This is why at the end of the Lord's Supper, we always pray the last prayer of Scripture. Come, Lord Jesus. The application is not to get deeper. It's to set aside ourselves for holiness. Another application we could think of this passage. You know, we read it last night, Philippians 2. Christians are now supposed to have the same mind that Christ had. He did not consider himself greater than others. He did not consider others' interests greater than himself. He considered him, uh, others' interests more important than his own. There's a humility. There's something about the gospel that continually, he, he lowers those who exalt themselves and he exalts the lowly. Christians are supposed to have that same mind as Christ. Finally, let's talk about the gifts. 
what did he bring? What, the, the word who has promised, who has covenanted with us, what did he bring? And if you're looking for the simplest little memorization today, I'll give it to you. Full of grace and truth. That's the last part of there, verse 14. Full of grace and truth. What does it mean to be full? There's two ways we can think about this word. He's full in the sense of capacity. He's full in that it's 100%. It's it's, it's absolute. He, He possesses all grace and truth. He is fully God. He has the fullness. He has all grace and truth. And this is important for us to understand. This is why we, we have to refuse to believe in the lie that somehow God is stingy with grace, grace or truth. He's full. He, he overflows. He, 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 he does not lack any grace or truth. He, he is full and he gives generously. The other way is it's complete. Jesus is not like Moses or Elijah or David. He's not repeating what he heard from God or an angel. No, he, he is God. He, he's full in that he is the complete revelation. He's full in that he, he's not a lamb that's going to be sacrificed every year because his lamb didn't really take away the sins of the world. No, he's full in that the grace he gives removes sin from us as far as the east is from the west because he takes it upon himself. He's full in capacity. He's full in the completeness. Well, what are these two words, full of grace and truth? These are very important words for us as Christians, and sometimes we get these words very confused. He's full of grace and truth. Let's be clear. His grace is full of truth. His truth is full of grace. We have a difficult time putting these two words together, don't we? His grace is perfectly truth. His truth is perfectly gracious. Think about this in contrast to Satan, who's full of condemnation and lies. Jesus Christ comes to reverse what Satan has brought. He's full of grace and truth. Christian, we must receive what Christ comes to give. Grace. Grace is kindness, mercy. I believe that the first grace we receive as Christians is usually forgiveness. It's, it's the way we, we first experience God. We see the sin we have because we receive His truth. We see the sin that we have that, that brings about condemnation. We see the sin that separates us from God. We, we see the sin that deserves wrath. So we look up to Jesus who paid our penalty perfectly because he's full of grace. We, we see the gift first that we have sin that we cannot wipe away or wash away. We have guilt that deserves wrath and there's nothing we can do except believe in him. Who died for us. One of the first graces is that we believe he forgives us. Another way we think about grace is the kindness, the love he gives us. Look at verse 12. 
but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. The relationship lost in Adam is renewed. The relationship Adam lost, where where sin now separates us from God, it's renewed because the true son, the only son, he comes and he shares with us the opportunity to once again know God personally and, and know God even more intimately. This is the doctrine of adoption. It's, it's where we see love, I think, best ex, ex, explicated in the scripture. I was watching a video of a Christmas scene. And it was a large family, and there was a boy in the middle of the room. And, and, and all the, the other gifts had already been opened. And this child in the middle, he was a foster child who was with his family. And he got the last present, and he opened the box, and the first thing he pulled out was a picture of the family that didn't include him. You could tell he looked at it, he was kind of confused. He set it aside, and underneath that picture was a letter. He said, this was the last family picture we had. In the next one, we want you to be in it, as our son and as our brother. The kid just starts bawling. Because that that child who once did not belong to a family now is brought into this family forever. That's the grace of God. Those of us who we've been separated from God because of our sin, he he brings us back to be part of his family. Something we love to do, we did last night, we're going to do today. We have a a table, and it's a special sacred place in our family. And we love having others join us at that table because it means you get to come be part of our family for that little while. And and you you then leave, and you can come back and be part of the family for that moment. But our family table is a sacred place. Jesus says, you can come to my table always because I'm inviting you to be part of the family, to know God as Father, as, as Jesus, the perfect Son, knows Him. For is that, that's the gift. The grace that forgives us so that we are no longer going to be fearful of the penalty of sin. And the grace that says, I, I love you, come and be part of the family always. The other gift is truth. He is full of truth. And as we've just thought through all the different ways in which that grace is extended, we see how truth is so important. The truth is we were created as God's image bearers. We were created good and we sinned and we deserve punishment and we are now distant. But God loved us while we're sinners. He pursued us while we're sinners. The truth is, now we can know who God is. We don't have to try to ascend into the heavens. He's come down to us. To speak with us. To walk with us. To give us His Word. His truth gives us wisdom. And His truth alone will set you free. He is full of grace and truth. Now let's feel how important this is in comforting that Jesus is full of grace and truth. I think 
one of the ways we can see how important this is, is we've probably all been in homes at some point that lacked either grace or truth. We've been in churches that lacked grace or truth. An overbearing parent who insisted on the righteousness of rules without kindness or compassion. It's just as bad as a parent who disregards the need for order and does not promote true righteousness. A church that leans towards legalism, specific rules that go beyond Scripture, or a church that disregards God's holiness altogether. We, we've experienced the pain of these realities. This is why we need Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. An argument can be made. It is absolutely true. Grace must have truth to be kind. And truth must have grace to be true. It's grace to restore and, and, and builds us up. Jesus is full of grace and truth. This is what he comes to give us. Christian, this morning, what are you full of? I ask because we're supposed to receive that grace and truth. And it's supposed to restore us so that we are full of grace and truth. So that we can live lives that rejoice greatly in having that grace and truth. So that we can then live lives that that declare and, and appreciate and live out that grace and truth. So that we can have homes that are full of grace and truth. So that we can have churches that are full of grace and truth. I want us to see one more thing that he gives us as he gives us the fullness of grace and truth. The gift that God gives us that is best is actually just himself. God gives us himself. The Father gives us his Son. Notice there in John 1, 17 and 18, in contrast to, to Moses, Jesus comes with grace and truth. And, and even before that, it's, it's grace upon grace. He, he lavishes because he's not stingy. He's full. No one has ever seen God, verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. God isn't a distant giver. He gives us himself. He, he gives us knowledge of who he is so that we can know him personally in the, the grace he gives and the truth he gives and the forgiveness he gives. He gives us himself so that we can know him with certainty. If you're not a believer this morning, do, do you know God? Do, do you want to know God? Here's what I want you to understand and, and, and walk away with. God wants you to know him. And God is the most competent communicator. I, I'm, a, I'm a lisping fool up here. Right? We, we, we've all have a difficult time communicating what we really want to say sometimes. God never fails in what he wants to say. His word is perfect. He wants you to know him. Will you listen? Will you hear him?
Will you ask God, will you, will you speak to me? Will you take up his word? The, the, the gospel of John, just keep going. You're in John 1 already. Keep going. Take up his word. And before each time, just break, help my unbelief. God, I want to know you. Who are you? He, he, he's not a silent God. He speaks. He speaks with power. His words are full of truth and grace. If you're not a believer, you, you know him by believing in his son. There, there is no God to be known that is not known by believing in Jesus, his only son who makes him known. Believe in him today. Believer, are you growing in gratitude for all Christ has given you? We've only scratched the surface of all the heavenly blessings. It's a lifetime of pursuing all the many heavenly blessings. When we've been blessed with all the heavenly blessings, it's a joy to just try to start understanding some of them. The problem I see is we too often just stop at forgiveness. I receive forgiveness. We move from understanding we're forgiven to knowing we're loved. To knowing we've been sanctified and changed. We grow in gratitude as we seek to know more of those gifts. And Christian, are we growing to know the giver of every good and perfect gift? Are we just looking for the gifts when we want them? Or do we, do we want to know the, the one who gives us all those gifts? Again, it's amazing to think about. He, he's made himself known. Look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. What a, what a testimony, what a confession. Of course, John did see the glory. He didn't really see it until the transfiguration. He didn't really fully understand it until the resurrection. But Christian, the glorious Son is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And now you can see him better than John could see him while standing next to him after the resurrection. Because the Son who's at the right hand of the Father has sent His Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, to illuminate your heart that you might see God. That you might see Him in all His grace and truth. That you might see Him in His glory. That you might more and more be able to put aside the things of this world that you're looking at and see Him who is truly glorious. How? Same way we just spoke of. Reading his word. Asking God to help our unbelief. One of the most significant things Jesus tells us, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You can't keep looking at filth and expect to see the glory of God. What are you looking for? We must turn our eyes to behold the God who has come to us to make known to us all the fullness of grace and truth. 
that we might see his glory. This is not a New Year's resolution. This is a response to Christmas. Commit yourself to growing more and more to seeing the one true God who's full of grace and truth, who who desires for you to see his true glory. Christian, this is the invitation. Non-Christian, this is the invitation. Pray that we might hear him, see him, and know him. The God who wants to be known. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have not remained silent, but your word, with all its power, declared promises. Your word, your son, has become flesh to fulfill those promises. Help us, Lord, to receive you. Help us, Lord, to know you. Our creator, our only Savior. Thank you that you have made yourself known. Help us know you and make you known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.